Section 11, comprised of chapters 31, 32, and 33, of Life and Adventures of Frank and Jesse James by J. A. Dacus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by P. J. Lando. Chapter 31. Gold Dust. The Muncie Business. Lying in wait. The evening train bound from the mining regions. Golden Galore. The train stopped by masked men and the express car plundered. Quote, Scores may be found whose errant time know not one hour of rest, their lives one course of faithless crime, their every deed unrest. Unquote. Muncie is a little wayside station on the Kansas Pacific Railroad, not many miles from Kansas City in Wyandotte County, Kansas. The situation, surroundings, and small importance of the place in other respects were not calculated to give it a widespread fame, and yet Muncie has become a place of historic renown as the scene of one of the most daring exploits of the most renowned outlaws of modern times. It happened one dreary December evening in the year 1875. On that occasion, the program which had served at Gads Hill was carried out at Muncie. A band of armed men, well-mounted and keen and alert, had waited until the eastbound passenger train on the great thoroughfare between the rich mines of the west and the centers of commerce in the east arrived near their chosen lair. The topography of the region and other favorable circumstances rendered the task one of easy accomplishment, though it involved an exhibition of daring which few men care to manifest. In some way, the bandits of which Frank and Jesse James were chiefs had information that a large amount of silver and gold was in charge of the express manager on that train. It has been said that this information was transmitted to them by Jackson Bishop, who had been a noted guerrilla in Quantrell's command, and who, subsequent to the cessation of hostilities, had journeyed to the far west and entered into business as a mining operator in Colorado. Be that as it may, one thing is certain. The Knights of the Road had information that the express company had treasures in trust that trip, and these they were ready to appropriate. In due time, the train approached Muncie. There was no sign of warning, and when the engine came to a standstill at the wayside station, in obedience to a signal, it was immediately taken possession of by seven men. The engineer and fireman were carefully guarded, the passengers were admonished and intimidated by the presence of armed men on the platforms of the cars, whose formidable pistols seemed to be pointed at each individual passenger, and the harsh commands of those men were obeyed with alacrity by the surprised passengers. But the robbers were generous that evening. The treasure in the express car was what they sought. Individual possessions were as the small dust compared to that. The express messenger was immediately confronted. Demands were made upon him with which he was compelled to comply. The safe was opened, and then the robbers proceeded to examine the contents of that treasure box at their leisure. The gain was worth the daring. Their reward was $30,000 in gold dust. The contents of the car were further examined, and a large amount of silver and other valuables were secured. On this occasion, the bandits were content with the spoils of the express car, which it is said amounted to about $55,000. 
The passengers were, therefore, not subjected to the manipulations of the robbers. As usual, the news of this fresh outrage by bandits was flashed far and wide. The country was aroused, and in an incredibly short space of time, many bands of men were abroad in all directions hunting the robbers. All their efforts proved vain. The shrewd raiders escaped with their booty. A few days after the great train robbery at Muncie, a police officer at Kansas City, in the discharge of his duty, arrested one Bill McDaniels, charged with being drunk in the street. When he was brought to the station and searched, articles on his person were identified as having been taken from the express car at Muncie. Every possible effort was made to induce Bill McDaniels to designate his confederates in the train robbery but to every proposition he was deaf, and finally, in attempting to escape, he was shot dead, dying without revealing the name of his confederates. The bandits escaped. Chapter 32. Huntington, West Virginia Bank Robbery. A band of robbers in the streets, the people alarmed, demand upon Mr. Oney, the robbers make off with the bank's funds, capture of Jack Keene and death of McDaniels, the handiwork of the Jameses shown. Quote, Where I am injured, there I'll sue redress. Look to it, everyone who bars my access. I have a heart to feel the injury, a hand to right myself, and by my honor, that hand shall grasp what graybeard law denies me. End quote. The James boys have always claimed that they were driven into outlawry by the very instrumentality which organized society has employed to subserve the ends of justice and afford protection to the rights and liberties of all, namely the government. This claim made by them has been partly conceded by a large class of persons, irrespective of all political affiliations and social relations. So their wild career was commenced, and so it has proceeded through many years. That the Jameses have been accused of crimes which they did not commit, there is scarcely room for doubt. One of the deeds which has been laid to their charge was the robbery committed at Corinth, Alcorn County, Mississippi. This event happened the same day that the train was robbed at Muncie, Kansas. The two places are many hundred miles apart, and of course the Jameses could not have been at both places at the same time. It is possible, indeed probable, that the robbery at Corinth, which stripped the bank at that place of a very large sum of money, was the handiwork of some of the members of the desperate band of men of which the Jameses were the acknowledged leaders. The same tactics which had been so successfully employed at St. Genevieve, Russellville, Corridon, Gallatin, and other points, characterized the raid on the funds of the bank of Corinth. The spoils obtained were exceedingly valuable, and although energetic pursuit was made, the robbers succeeded in making their escape. Their trail, however, was followed into Missouri, and several circumstances indicate that the successful bandits were members of the same organization with the James Boys and Younger Brothers. After this, there was a season of quiet. In the spring of 1876, the robbers renewed the campaign for spoils. The incidents of the past year had begun to become memories, and the success which had attended the gang during the past years had given them confidence in their ability to plunder at will wherever they might select a field for
for the exhibition of their prowess and skill. The trees had assumed their green habiliments, and the early spring flowers exhaled their choicest perfumes, scenting the balmy breezes as they blew over hills and through valleys. The schemers had planned another raid. This time they selected an objective point remote from the scenes of their former deeds. It was a romantic expedition away into the mountain regions of eastern Kentucky and the state of West Virginia. The spring birds sang cheery lays as the brigands marched on to their destined halting place. Huntington, West Virginia is a beautiful town of about 3,000 inhabitants situated on the Ohio River in Cabell County and is on the line of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. In 1876, the advent of the steam cars had given an impetus to trade, and the old town had taken a new growth. The bold bandits had selected Huntington as the scene of a most sensational event. The tactics which had served so well on many other occasions were once more adopted. On a bright April day, four men made their appearance at the bank. They had come through the streets without exciting any suspicion. When they had arrived at the front of the bank, two of them dismounted, drew their pistols, rushed into the bank where they found Mr. Oney, the cashier, and another gentleman. These they at once covered with their pistols and proceeded to overpower the cashier. They then emptied the contents of the safe into a sack, and leaving Oney and his friend securely bound, they proceeded to remount their horses. While the two robbers were engaged inside, the other two, who had remained in the street, very effectually overawed the citizens who came that way by displaying their pistols and occasionally firing a shot. The whole operation was completed within less than half an hour from the time the robbers made their appearance in Huntington. There were not many persons who knew what had happened until after the marauders had left the place. When the people awakened to a realization of the true nature of the morning occurrence, there was at once a storm of excitement raised. Officers of the law and citizens of Huntington, without official relations, vied with each other in the alacrity with which they prepared to pursue the robbers. As soon as the two robbers who had taken the treasure were mounted, the whole party galloped away, intimidating the citizens as they went by firing off their pistols. A vigorous pursuit was at once commenced. The robbers were a long way from their base, and the road before them was rugged and difficult. For days the pursuit was unabated. Bly, the well-known detective of Louisville, sent his best men on the road to track the fugitives. The chase became exciting. Diverted from their intended line of retreat, the marauders sought refuge among the mountains of eastern Kentucky and Tennessee. The horses of the robbers failed and were abandoned. Finally, the pursuers came up with the fugitives. A fight ensued, and one of the robbers was killed before they had left the borders of Kentucky. This person was identified afterwards as Thomason McDaniels, a brother of Bill, who was killed while attempting to escape from the officers in Kansas City after the affair at Muncie. The pursuit was continued. In the hills of Fentress County, Tennessee, the officers came up with the robbers again. This time they succeeded in capturing Jack Keene, another desperado known in western Missouri and Kentucky. The others escaped and finally made their way into Missouri. Keene was taken back and lodged in jail at Cabell. 
the grand jury of Cabell County returned a true bill against him, and in due time he was placed on trial, convicted, and received a long sentence in the penitentiary of West Virginia. The presence of McDaniels and Keene, both well-known desperados of Missouri, at once suggested the James boys as leaders in the Huntington robbery. Detective Bly at first heralded to the world that Jesse James was captured when Keene was taken. Statements consequently made by the convicted robber left no doubt that certainly Jesse James and probably Frank were parties to the robbery of the bank at Huntington. It matters not who were the robbers in name. The deed was undoubtedly committed by members of the organization of which the James boys were the most noted leaders. The destiny which seems to have led them continued to favor them. The leaders of the Huntington raid escaped and carried the bulk of the Huntington Bank's funds with them. Chapter 33. Jesse's Wooing and Wedding. Courting under difficulties. A fair cousin. She admires the outlaw. The courtship continues, and Jesse takes his cousin as his bride. Quote, oh, say not that my heart is cold to aught that once could warm it, that beauty's form so dear of old no more has power to charm it, or that the ungenerous world can chill one glow of fond emotion for those who made it dearer still and shared my wild devotion. End quote. Jesse James, the bold raider and dashing outlaw in love? Preposterous. And yet, why not? Those who have studied the ways of human nature with most attention find nothing singular in the fact that Jesse might prove an ardent lover or wonderful in the assumption that he might be beloved in turn. Love is the grand passion, after all, and few persons have lived who did not, at some time in the course of their lives, feel the deep chords of their hearts touched and realize the tender spell that enchained them. Why should not Jesse James, the man of splendid physique, the very embodiment of strong passions, yield to the powerful influence which so universally sways the human heart? Rather, we might ask, why should Jesse James not fall in love, as the expression goes? It was perfectly natural that he should at some time, somewhere, find someone endowed with the capability of awakening in him the tender passion. Was he not human? Were his emotions and constitution so different from the rest of the children of time? What if he was outlawed? Had he not eyes to see and ears to hear? Had all tender feelings found a grave in his heart? It is true that the nature of his employment and the circumstances which surrounded him rendered his life an isolated one to a certain extent. He was not thrown into the great whirlpool which the world calls society, and this very isolation of his position would very naturally prompt him to seek the companionship of one who could hold a nearer and dearer place in his heart than even his brother. He might yet retrieve some of the disasters of the past and wipe out some of the stains which blurred his character, if led by the sweet, gentle influence of a true woman. Who can ever know what hopes animated him, what bright dreams of a better life cheered him, when he thought of her who would not, perhaps could not, join in the general execration of his name? It may be that at such times a vision rose before him of a quiet home, with peace after the strife, where love dwelt, and where the bitter curses of the past might never come. 
It may be that he looked forward to the rest which would come to his tempest-riven breast when the storm had passed and the serene sun lighted his pathway through a quiet land. And at such times it was but natural that he should seek the presence of the beloved one and plead with her, quote, O linger yet a moment, is it a sin that I have loved thee so, and worship thy bright image? If it be, let grief and suffering atone for that. Long as this heart can know the power of pain, but let me look on thee and hear thee still. End quote. And what woman ever listened unmoved to such appeals? Quote, the brave deserve the fair. Unquote. And the history of the race shows that when the heart is enlisted, when the tender bloom of love sheds its perfume around her, woman is careless of the world's opinion and brave in daring its frowns. Jesse had a fair cousin, a handsome young lady, possessed of an amiable disposition and a mind well stored with knowledge. This destined bride of the distinguished outlaw is the daughter of a sister of Reverend Robert James, who was married in the days of her youth to a Mr. Mims. Ms. Z. Mims was deprived of a mother's love and guidance at a time when she was just entering the estate of womanhood. She had a sister older than herself, who was united in marriage with Mr. Charles McBride, a respectable carpenter and builder in Kansas City, about the year 1869. For several years, Ms. Mims resided with her relatives in Kansas City and gained the respect and esteem of a large circle of acquaintances. In the days of her childhood, she had known her cousin Jesse, and his bright blue eyes and soft peach-like complexion, and the smile that used to ripple over his countenance, and his cheery words may even then have drawn the little girl toward her cousin. As time went by, Z had grown to the condition of womanhood, and Jesse had become celebrated as a daring soldier, and afterwards a reckless outlaw. But somehow Miss Z could never believe her cousin Jesse to be so bad as he was represented. And when they met, which they frequently did, she always had a word of gentle affection for cousin Jesse, who was ever kind in his behavior toward her. Many times Jesse James was seen in Kansas City, when to be there was an exposure to imminent peril. When the wild winds swept across the frozen river and screamed over the hills, Jesse was accustomed to dare the fury of the tempest, brave the chill of the temperature, and seek the cozy fireside which became a shrine when blessed by the presence of his fair cousin. And when it was summertime, and the forest pathways were gloomy in the shadows of night, and the stars in the deep azure vault of heaven alone lent their feeble rays to illuminate the dark world, then the outlaw would take his lonely way across the wide prairies, through the deep tangled forests where the owls hide by day and hoot by night, and the wild tenants of the woodlands make their lair, by lonely streams murmuring as their waters go on the way to mingle with the far-wandering tide of the mighty Missouri, to seek the side of her whose smile was always brighter at his coming. What mattered it to him if the streets of the city were deserted by all save the guardians of the law, who in the deep-shadowed recesses waited and watched for him? His courage owned no limitations under ordinary circumstances. What might it become if stimulated by the all-intoxicating influence of love? 
If the watchers saw him under the gaslight in the streets of the slumbering city, they let him go, and so Jesse's courting days passed away. The outlaw's wooing proceeded and was completed. Who knows what thoughts were his in those days? Who can ever tell by what processes of reasoning or influence of love Ms. Z. Mims reciprocated the outlaw's passion? Who knows what earnest counsels she held with her own mind, and the processes which ended in the triumph of the affections, and a perfect yielding to him, and the development of a devotion which smiled at contumely and consented to sacrifice all things which had before been pleasing to her at the shrine of love. His presence became necessary to her happiness, and her smile was sunlight poured into the otherwise dark recesses of the outlaw's heart. So it came about one pleasant evening in 1874 that Jesse James and Miss Z. Mims repaired to the house of Dr. Denham, a mutual friend near Kearney, Clay County, Missouri, where they were met by the Reverend William James of the M.E. Church South, an uncle of Jesse, who proceeded to unite the lovers in the holy bonds of matrimony. The ceremony was performed in the presence of the doctor's family and one or two intimate friends. Jesse James had won a wife, and Miss Z. Mims had consented in her devotion to become an outlaw's bride. Ostracized by society, proscribed by the law, and hunted by enemies and the officers of justice, Jesse James took his bride, and they journeyed away, across plains, through valleys, over streams, toward the clime of the sun. The outlaw and his bride sought a place where they could rest and in each other's society. Quote, like some vision olden of far other time, when the age was golden in the young world's prime, of the future dreaming weary of the past, for the present scheming, happy they at last. End quote. What cared they for the cold world's scorn? Jesse had provided a cozy home far away on the borders of civilization, where the names of mountains, vales, and springs and streams are softened in the musical language of the old Castile. But we have heard that even in that distant land, the life of the outlaw's wife is not isolated, but on the contrary, under a name which their conduct has made respectable. They have friends, and she her associates, who are ignorant of the history of the outlaw and hold her in esteem. A little child, born sometime in 1876, has come to bless their union by its childish prattle, and the daring outlaw has been seen with the innocent little one mounted on his shoulder, engaged in racing about his ranch. It may be that there are episodes in the life of Jesse James, which are like the green oasis in the sun-beaten desert, bright moments when the demon is temporarily vanquished and the spirit of goodness illuminates the world about him. The man who can love cannot be wholly the slave of vengeance and hate, and even Jesse James may possess traits of mind and qualities of the heart which point to something higher and better than what is known of him. End of section 11